0: Hello. I am Beth Fisher Yoshida. I am Director and Faculty of the Master of Science Program in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at Columbia University. And I'm here hosting the program today, Peace and Conflict at Columbia, Conversations from the Leading Edge. Today I have with me a colleague of mine, Alex Fisher. Alex has a couple of different titles affiliated with the Earth Institute at Columbia University. He's a senior research associate with Seasons. He's associate director of the Haiti Research and Policy Program and his newer role is Assistant Director of the Environment, Peace and Security Executive Seminar that we will be hosting in September in September. Yes. So hi Alex, welcome. Hi, good morning, Beth. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Um I'm I'm very happy to be here and um looking forward to, to diving in. I'm I'm as you said, Um, wear a couple of hats here at Columbia. Um, I started uh, almost six or seven years ago um, working with the Center for International Earth Science Information Network, otherwise known as SEASON, perhaps one of the longest acronyms of a center, um, looking at a variety of environment and security issues, um, mostly looking at curriculum development um, based on uh, a a series of... um, kind of round table faculty meetings that happened um, at SEPA, at the School of International and Public Affairs, um, thinking about how to build in natural resource management, environmental science, and really the questions of environmental variability um, into the curriculum um, at SEPA, at but also pairing that with a conflict resolution lens. Um, my background is in uh, kind of political science um, with a focus on water management, um, so I, about 12 years ago, was um, working for a nonprofit in Vermont, looking at uh, nonviolent and very low-level conflict, but um, conflict between a private water um, a water bottling company that was extracting water from um, a main aquifer in Vermont um, that. Drew down the wells of the local community, and the local community got very angry, and it raised really interesting questions about the legality um, of who owns the the water under the ground, and challenging land laws about uh, boundaries of property, and um, so I became very interested in um, the kind of nexus between water management um, and conflict resolution mechanisms, and then over my career, I've, I've looked at. Um, kind of different angles of that question. So I looked at it from a legal perspective of who owns water and what are the conflict resolution and dispute resolution mechanisms in the legal system both in the U.S. and in other countries. Um, I then moved to Lebanon, to Beirut, um, where I was working with the American University of Beirut. Um, I became really interested in how at the emergence of the civil war in the 70s, um, the collapse of government and regulatory functions corresponded with a change in technology for groundwater drilling. Um, So I I started to see that uh, the point at which it became very cheap and affordable for individual families to be able to afford drilling um, their own wells was at the same point that the war was emerging and that the government lost its ability to regulate. So now, when I was there in in the early 2000s, um, you see you know thousands of private wells completely unregulated and in, in a country that has you know huge water scarcity issues to begin with um, it's very difficult for the government um, which as most people can see from the front pages of the newspapers is still chaotic and weak and constantly changing um, it was very hard to re-exert the authority over the management um, so I became very interested in water changing technologies um, and how it played a role in social dynamics and social conflict Um, and that's led to this this work here now
0: Wow, it's interesting so I know that I've heard that water is going to be the most precious commodity it probably already is and uh, having so many different stakeholders sharing the same water source but not necessarily having a constructive conversation about how to manage and use that water source is an issue and I think the whole issue about aquifers and how they're getting dried Mm -hmm. up and don't get replenished Yes. It's a big deal that people are not aware of. Yes. So it sounds like a natural evolution that you would now be involved in the uh, Environment, Peace, and Security Executive Seminars. So how did this seminar come to be? What's a little bit of the history of how it is was formed?
1: Well, as, as you know, it's been a long history to reach this point. Um, uh, but it, it really emerged from kind of three strands. One was a clear request from students um, who were looking for more Um, tools, skills, and theoretical frameworks of how to understand the relationship between natural resources, um, peace, security, and conflict. Um, There was a lot of work in the early 90s around the concepts of environmental security, um, but those never really translated into uh, core material of, of material that was used in teaching. Um, there was a lot of great research done on on high value resources so things like the blood diamonds in Sierra Leone and the role of um, you know oil in conflict uh, natural gas diamonds so very high value prominent um, natural resources that were very clearly linked to um, bloody violence so so that that material became clear Um, and it was it was Integrated into some of the political science courses and international affairs courses, but not um, with a really deep investigation of how or thinking about how um, the responses, the different international treaties, the regulatory processes, um, and even local development played a role in reducing the stress. Um, and then, uh, you know, the emergence of climate change science that's happened really in the last 15 years. Um, and, and the the more direct link with environmental variability. So regardless of the actual science around changing climates, but the recognition that the the shocks that are being presented in far greater frequency, more frequent hurricanes, more frequent droughts, like we're seeing in California, um, we there is a recognition that 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 type of environmental. Variability was influencing social dynamics. It was influencing the price of food. It was influencing, um, you know, a whole range of of impacts that that lead to what we consider stability um, in our social, political systems, economic systems. Um, so there was this kind of emergence of of new ideas, student demand, um, and then, uh, if you remember, a few years ago. Um, the United Nations Environment Program in partnership with um, the Environmental Law Institute in Washington, D.C., University of Tokyo, um, the Earth Institute here at Columbia. Um, There was a series of um, probably over 100 case studies. That was one of the real first times that a, a global group of experts sat down and tried to document the connections between environment and conflict. Um, and so we had a big conference to release the first of six volumes, um, which are all now available and, and great reads to, for anyone who's interested in looking at this, this topic more deeply. Um, so we had a, a, a great conference that brought together 300 scholars and practitioners from around the world. Um, and then after the conference, we sat down with a smaller group and really said, um, all right, well, now we see that um, water and conflict are directly related in these different places around the world. We can see that land tenure um, and desertification are linked to um, conflicts. We can see that um, low-value resources like bananas and um, um, coffee are linked to social structures and conflict zones and that there's a direct link in how those types of resources are managed. Um, But how do we teach that? And how do we make sure that the next generation of practitioners, whether they be um, you know, government representatives, um, humanitarian groups, nonprofit groups, um, officials within the UN, um, or even private sector. I mean, there's a lot of companies that face this on a daily basis. How do we incorporate these learnings into curriculum that they can have? Um, so, out of that, we've we've come to this idea of um, having an executive seminar this fall, um, which will be the first time we offer it, and that's a one-week um, seminar targeted at of mid to senior level um, professionals who really want to get um, some tool sets, skills, and a, a knowledge of the latest theory and research on the linkages. Um, and then we'll, we're planning to launch a full certificate program um, a year from now which would be a, a four course series and really allow students to or participants to dive in more depth.
0: So in case people are interested, the executive seminar will be held September 17th through 21st at Columbia University, and it's a joint effort between the Earth Institute and the Program on Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at the School of Continuing Education. You said so many interesting, rich things, and I know that that resource of case studies is a phenomenal collection and um, something we'll probably be using in the seminar. So you mentioned a couple of different things and I was uh, thinking about the tools you mentioned and different resources and governance and also about the interlink. So can you say a little bit about the main streams that we'll be addressing in the seminar that might be of interest to the listeners?
1: Yeah, so it, we're it's um it's evolving, but I think what we're what we'll be looking at are um reviewing the latest research and science around um kind of the key components on the environmental side. So climate change, water resources, um, the extractive industry, so um, natural resources from mining um, to land rights and land use um, to um, I think the final component, if I haven't already said this, is looking at the climate change science. So how does um, different variation in weather and patterns, whether it be El Nino, or climate change projected over the medium and long term. Um, so we'll have a, a, a real strong component of the latest uh, research and, and framework for understanding the role of environment linked to conflict, peace, and security. And then we'll focus on conflict resolution skills. So really kind of the work that you've been doing, Beth, um, thinking about how do you communicate in conflicts, um, how do you use systems thinking to Look at conflict as a whole system and then break apart the components whether it be the root causes or the continued stressors um, that are aggravating the conflict Um, so we'll really dive into some of the theory on conflict resolution and and work on some um, skills that can be readily applied Um, and then the final component will will be more skill based so we want to talk about how um, the the changing face of data is making a difference in the way decisions are being made so how we visualize droughts, um, whether it's through maps of groundwater depletion um, or, you know, looking at high r- how do we visualize through data the, the risk zones for um, hurricanes, kind of, um, this isn't related to conflict, but the way here in New York City that we use the zoning maps and looking at elevation to see where the f- the, the flood risk is the highest. And um, so we want to yeah, talk- but it, but it could be. Well, it could be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> New York is, is certainly very vulnerable. So- well, especially um,
0: what happened with Sandy and the flooding,
1: exactly, and and that was you know done in a context where we have a social, a strong social protection system with the government and um, private sector responding quickly. Imagine that happening in you know I work in Haiti. A lot of my work is is in a Caribbean island that has almost none of those protections, um, and that you know as those shocks of the hurricanes and um, I was there for the earthquake um, really disrupt the. the the fabric of the society and the way that institutions respond. Um, so the last part of this this course, we'll be looking at conflict assessments and the new types of um, visualization and data tools that will be relevant to the linkages between environment and conflict.
0: Yeah, so something to highlight is, as you mentioned, taking a systems approach and the issues are so complex. Mm-hmm the answers are complex Mm -hmm. and how to address these issues so if we don't look at all of the interlinkages between all the different factors you talked earlier about governance as well Mm -hmm. if you don't have strong governance then you don't have strong monitoring and monitoring and you don't have a stable state and I remember from my experience in the Middle East in in Jordan even though the government had regulations about how much water can be used each day you can't monitor every part of the pipeline of water and so people are siphoning off water anyway so as well as you try to do things, it's not a hundred percent control in there. So um, one of the one yes. of the
1: big questions that I've been thinking about is how technology. So we were we just wrote a piece. Um, it's on our website about um, the trying to trying to re- review the the story of how the conflict in Syria started. Um, and one of the pieces that we just were thinking about in relationship to this course is um, how most. Mainstream media tell the story in Syria as an evolution of social protests, um, street protests, and then bad policy decisions that aggravated the tensions um, and a real rural-to-urban migration. So increased population pressures um, and economic kind of pr- pr- pressures in the urban areas. We re- we thought about it, um, looking at some of the research papers that have come out as what is the role of drought, poor water management. Um, poor governance, and as a macro view, um, you know this is linked to theories of climate change. Uh, so again, taking a broader look at the system as a whole and saying what really aggravated that that rural to urban migration, what were the policies in place um, or not in place that that kind of frustrated or aggravated uh, the the communities and the farming, especially the farming communities, um, when they were running out of water, um, you know unjust, or it's argued to be unjust, distribution of water between stakeholders. Um, so yeah, this, this concept of looking at the broader system, um, it's not never, or very rarely, one factor or one piece, but how it all links together.
0: Right, so it's uh, linking the environment with the social protests mm-hmm. because people were feeling the impact directly on their everyday living? Mm -hmm. and their livelihoods and so on. So, yeah, it's interesting because we understand also in the world of conflict resolution, and Peter Coleman has written about this, how things are very complex, but we simplify to be able to understand Mm -hmm. it. But if we stay at the simplicity, then we lose the richness of the complexity and how to address the different issues because if you intervene and you try to address only the social protests as mm-hmm. was tried to be done in Syria, it doesn't work as well mm-hmm. because there are still other things happening and mm-hmm. then it just exacerbates an issue somewhere else. So we've kind of touched on this, but I was wondering is there anything else you wanted to mention about the key issues and why it's so critical to pay attention to this kind of seminar now, to look at the interlinkages between environment, peace and security?
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think um all you have to do is open a newspaper and um at least one of the stories is now um, kind of very directly addressing these issues so um, you know whether it be the the extreme drought in the sahel or um, even in california i mean california is not a i I hope not at risk of of serious violent conflict but um, or if you look at um, the news that comes out of um, kind of west africa on um, kind of continued timber trade or even the challenges of how to regulate the mining industries. Um, I was just in Sierra Leone um, a few months ago working with the Environmental Protection Agency there. Um, You know, they as a government are trying to regain the ability to to manage their resources um, and they're launching an environmental impact assessment. Well, they've launched it a a few years ago, but um, they're really trying to boost their ability to assess potential impacts of the mining industry um, on the environment we'll and the community, Sierra
0: Leone. We haven't mentioned health, but mm-hmm. of course, the Ebola virus has been very serious right now there. So, do you see linkages between that and environment and other kinds of governance?
1: Um, yeah, I think the. I mean, there's a lot of uh, linkages in terms of the the spread of the disease. So, um, it came from a very rural agrarian um, uh, pl- uh, context, and then through the market system spread very quickly. Um, The government's re-diverting all of its resources to try to contain it as it should, Um, but that comes at a cost of all of the other programs that are in place. Um, Yeah, I'm not not an expert on the health side, but there's a lot of research that's been done on the linkages between, um, especially changing climates and the change in um, kind of infectious diseases and the way that they're spreading through mosquitoes and other types of um kind of the transmission process.
0: So in case you're just tuning in, I just wanted to clarify this is Beth Fisher Yoshida Columbia University the program of peace and conflict at Columbia Conversations from the Leading Edge and I have with me today my colleague Alex Fisher and we're talking about environment peace and security in a broader sense and also specifically about also a seminar we'll be holding in September, September 17th through 21st. Okay, so uh, we did talk a little bit about systems, mm-hmm. and uh, you did mention a little bit about your work in Haiti, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you'd like to elaborate on that some more.
1: Sure, I'm, you know, so last week uh, Beth and I were um, at a conference, um, it's called an innovation lab. Um, so we were thinking about how systems, dynamic systems, so changing systems, um, can be used to understand complex um, situations, and specifically conflicts. Um, and I, I think I've mentioned this to you, Beth, one of the more interesting kind of outcomes that I had from that conference is realizing that, um, you know, whether we call it dynamic systems or not, we're constantly interacting in a very, very complex system. Um, and so at the conference, we were looking at, um, kind of water issues, um, in, in Hawaii and thinking about how to address, um, kind of the multiple layers of, of conflict that exists within the water allocation and management system there. And it reminded me so much of the work that I've been doing in Haiti um, over the last three or four years, um, thinking about watershed management um, in the in the south of Haiti. Um, two very different contexts, both islands, both very pretty, um, but <laughs> very, very, very different. Um, different in what way, oh, economically? Economics, social. Um, Maybe governance? Yeah, the governance systems are, I mean one's a um, part of the US and has the federal system um, overseeing it and, and very involved with the regulations. Um, Haiti's legal system is not as well developed, especially around environmental um, le- legislation. Uh, but what I had found interesting, and one of the things I talked about at the conference was how in Haiti, um, you know, deforestation um, and pressures on land resources are very high. I think most people have seen that that satellite imagery showing the border between the DR and Haiti um, where the DR is completely green and forested and you can literally see the line um, where the Haiti side is is brown and deforested. So the ideas of deforestation is very well known in Haiti. Um, what we were trying to think about is um, how to think of, of a systems approach to responding um, and designing you know, programs and supporting the government interventions and the community interventions um, to reverse that trend. And so we thought of um, a watershed unit, so an ecological unit defined by the ridges and thought of it as a system from the top of the mountain all the way down to the coast and how everyone interacts within that system. So how the rivers flow, how the water flow, um how the communities are dispersed where there's built where there's houses and settlements um where people are farming uh where they want to get greater use out of the land um where it's being used for timber trade so we started to think about this as a system and that was um you know what we what we did in in this dynamic systems lab except for hawaii so the conflicts um were and the the kind of challenges were huge and so we, we tried to break it down um, in my mind since I work with a geospatial institute here at Columbia I'm, I'm predisposed to thinking in terms of maps and geographic boundaries you know boundaries. so funny you
0: said that because that's exactly where I was going to go with this I remember you did a great presentation and you showed different kinds of mapping and mm-hmm. I think you could tell you a little bit about the geospatial technologically mm-hmm. oriented mapping and then the mapping you did with the community because I think that's of interest as well
1: yeah so what so what this conference really made me think about is that you know whenever we look at a map, whenever we pull out our Google map on our phone to see where we're going, that map has a bunch of different layers. Um, and it really takes multiple types of data to build just that, that, that front-facing map that we look at. Um, so when we look at a system, whether we look at it as a watershed or as an island or as a state, um, there's a whole bunch of different subsystems within it. And so in, in the presentation I was showing, um, how GIS data or spatial data um, really kind of is an example of that system's thinking because you have to build on the different layers that you want to think about Um, and so in watershed management um, what we did was try to create a a spatial representation of a watershed and then realize that within it there's not just the physical attributes but the social ones as well so where are the organizations where are the links between different community members Um, if you have a conflict between one user and the other user who's in between them and what's the use patterns between them and how do you both visualize that and articulate it Um, and so in haiti uh, the communities we were working with were not um, as well um, exposed to i mean they didn't have um, iphones to visualize their watershed Um, and what we realized is that everyone sees things differently so we had the community there Using based on the the geospatial GIS maps we produced, and um, we used we worked here with the school of of architecture and planning to um, carve out a, an actual relief of a watershed similar to the way architects you, used to build the models. the models of their houses. We did that for the watershed, um, and then we had the community draw their own perception of where they lived. Um, and as they were drawing it, we would show them pieces of the maps and say. Um, you know how do you link this together how do you how do you when you're representing this hillside here where does it actually fit on the watershed and then you know on this model this 3d model um, and then how does that relate to the things around you so are you actually taking into consideration your neighbors here Um, because I don't see that on your hand-drawn map Um, or I see on this map that you have conflict with someone that you're drawing out because that's how you perceive it but how does that actually relate in terms of the land use decisions
0: so I know from my own experience in working with things like that where people have different perceptions, different worldviews, that um, they believe that's the only point of view a lot of times until they become exposed to another Mm -hmm. point of view, and then they either resisted or they realized something and they learn. So it sounds like there was a lot of rich learning opportunity. Can you just name something that was learned from being able to see how the local people sort of drew their own maps and their understanding of the watershed and how they use it, which is the social, Mm -hmm. all that, and compared to the more official, maybe GIS look of the watershed and the physical model that you had?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to speak for them because I don't know if... if, um,
0: Well, something that may have come out in your conversations that you did know.
1: I mean, one of the more interesting things that came out from this mapping exercise we did was that, um, you know, our goal was to think about environmental recovery. Um so um, we were the name of the project was a uh, environmental restoration program um, and so we were looking for ways to you know best options for reforestation um, or for better land use. so it may not have actually been non-productive trees there might have been fruit trees or it might have been you know coffee and mangoes are very very prominent in the um, in the system and um, so so one of the interesting findings we had originally when we pulled out the maps is that we the community realized that a lot of the land was owned by the catholic church um and that as people had passed away they had left the land to the church to manage um and that there were you know people had settled on that land and were using it but the actual ownership patterns were from the catholic church um and so i think there was this um it was very difficult because things aren't surveyed um, in the same type of detail that we do here in the U.S. But um, trying to look at, you know, people would would say, oh, the land up this hill is all the church's land. Um, but what does that actually mean in terms of the space? So we were trying to look on a map to figure out, you know, how much space, how much land does that really entail? What are the boundaries of it? And then think about, well, who's currently using that land? Because the church had said that they wanted to reforest um, or have programs to help, the, the current tenants, um, you know, really do a, a large push, especially on the hillsides for reforestation, um, and they knew where it was. They could they could basically walk you there. But um, we were trying to figure out how to how to merge that kind of more abstract thing of up the hill into here's the area that that you could focus on, and then making sure that you know we put nurseries close by or um, that the church delineated the property or the church said all oh, this, this portion of it is really our priority. Um,
0: so I know that around the world documentation of land ownership mm-hmm. is a big issue mm-hmm. especially when there have been changes in government and different people have sort of in quotes owned that mm-hmm. piece of land Then how do you actually prove it? How do you prove documentation to get a permit to rebuild mm-hmm. a house and so on? So, uh, And I know that also in Haiti mm-hmm. there's a uh, sort of compounded issue because during the earthquake a lot of other whatever documentation yeah. there may have been was also lost so that must be a big issue so you can say well I think it's like around here but what does around here really mean when you have to really measure mm-hmm. and say this acre belongs to this group and this acre belongs to a different group
1: yeah I mean the the, the challenge in Haiti is the 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 line between formal and informal land tenure um, so a lot of the land is passed down but not documented within the land registries um, and the land the 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 register, the the public notaries, um, are very powerful in Haiti because they're the ones who approve official documentation around land. And that's
0: interesting too. So then you get to see who holds the power mm-hmm. and for what reasons.
1: Oh, very interesting. Um, and the judicial system, you know, is is still not as strong as as other countries. So um, trying to mediate disputes, especially when you have informal mixed with formal. Um, makes it very difficult for the dispute resolution mechanisms. And we actually partnered with AC4 a couple years ago. Mm-hmm, um, I remember. When we were starting this watershed program, we were worried that if um, investors came in and poured money into this area and tried to increase agricultural uh, agriculture and invest in different kind of um, markets and, and kind of small companies, um, that it could have a unintended consequence of... Um, you know, a rush back to the land. So people who had left and gone to Port-au-Prince um, or areas that had better, um, you know, opportunities might come back and say, well, this is actually our land. And then the people who are settled on it would say, well, no, we've been living here. And um, So we were worried that there might have been a unintended uh, issue over land rights. Um, and so we had worked with AC4 to try to understand what are the formal and informal dispute mechanisms. Um, and I had learned that a lot of the time community members would go to the mayor or to the, you know, local um, kind of, uh, it's not, not a mayor, but someone who has a lot of kind of social authority um, in the community. Um, so is like it an like elder. social
0: capital kind of authority, or is it like official? No, it's social. Politi- it's not, social. It's not, it's not yeah.
1: always political. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they would be the ones who would mediate the dispute, and they either they would mediate it or their, their judgment would be the decision, um, and that there was a, almost a preference at times to go to that system versus going to the official courts, which are long and arduous and um, not always fair.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned AC4, because I forgot to mention AC4. And AC4 stands for the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity. And one of the things that we do, and I'm also one of the co-chairs with Peter Coleman of AC4, and one thing we do which really gives us great pleasure is to be able to fund really interesting projects, such as the one you were talking about in Haiti. So uh, before we close, just wanted to note, do you know offhand the website that people can go to if they want to look at the EPS Executive Seminar?
1: Sure. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the... The program this fall, it's www.ce.columbia.edu backslash E-P-S.
0: Great. So uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close, Alex, something we may not have touched on?
1: No, I'm, thank you very much for having me. This was really a great conversation and interesting to dive into these, these issues more deeply.
0: Right. So if you want more, then please uh, come to our seminar. September 17th through 21st at Columbia University. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye now.
1: Thank you.